Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ruby Rogues. My name is John Epperson, and today on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey there. And uh, we have Evo Anjo. Okay, Anjo. Yep, for guest today. And we're excited to have you, Evo. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you've been doing, and, and maybe why people would recognize you out in the community? Yes. So, hello, I'm Evo, and I'm originally from Portugal, and I'm like I'm a big fan of Linux, free and open source software, and Ruby, and also the Java Virtual Machine. So it's kind of weird. These are my two loves in terms of tech. So I really like working with Ruby, with Ruby and the, the whole community aspect, and how people do really weird and interesting things with it. And my background being a bit from like half Ruby, half Java, I think I bring like an interesting point of view in terms of like wishing that I could do some things with Ruby that I also can do with Java and also bringing a bit of the context there. So why should people should check out what I do is because I do weird things with Ruby and I'm interested in pushing Ruby really hard and like doing even weirder things with Ruby and getting more out of Ruby because I think that Ruby still has a lot of mileage to go, a lot of interesting things that we will still, that people will still do with Ruby. And I think all of the rumors in terms of Ruby's death have been wildly exaggerated. Here, here. We don't have Luke to, to jump in there, but yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So we we ran across your blog post uh, talking about unsafe concurrent Ruby patterns, which is why we originally wanted to yap with you or whatever. And we actually talked about Ractors a while back. And hopefully we got most of the things right because I think that we were trying to figure them out at the time. But can you like maybe just get us straight on some of that stuff? Like, so, so can you talk about what a Ractor is maybe just from a high level so that we have that context as we're yapping about stuff? Yeah. So a Ractor in Ruby is something that is similar-ish, but not exactly the same as an actor that the people might have heard of from other languages, such as Erlang, Elixir, or even Scala. So the idea is that actors are new entities that came in in Ruby 3, and these entities uh, can only communicate via message passing instead of like normal Ruby objects communicate, which is via sending messages uh, to each other and call, by calling methods and passing arguments around and whatnot. So unlike Ruby methods, Raptors communicate just by this mechanism of exchanging messages and in particular, messages need to be immutable things and so so that multiple reactors cannot be at the same time accessing uh, mutable states. So a couple clarification questions. So my understanding, so first of all, 
like it always made sense to me that Ractor was Ruby actor, right? Minus, you know, that's what it meant. But yeah, since, since in Ruby, calling a method on another object is is quote unquote sending a message like the for clarification like i think what we're talking about here is more similar to like if you're using like a kafka queue or something like that that type of message right like it's a queuing a message queue that's completely separate from sending messages via hitting send. yes actually it's that end so there's actually two ways in which reactors can communicate when one of them is via this message queue which uh, as you said is very uh, is much closer to a kafka queue than calling a method and there, and on this, uh, when we communicate via this way, communication is is asynchronous. So you put something on the queue, and then sometime later, the reactor might might read it. And there's actually another way for reactors to communicate, where a reactor can basically block until until another reactor comes in and says, like, I'm here to take some information from you, and the the other reactor will be blocking, saying, I'm here waiting for someone to come in and take some information from me. So there's actually this different op- uh, option where the queue is like a reactor kind uh, ends up waiting on a queue of size one and will block until there's something it can either read or get something from that queue so you can have like a dependent message yes in a way so effectively the reactor can say i'm waiting for someone to hand me over some information before i can continue or another reactor can say like I'm I'm waiting until I can hand over some information to uh, another actor, which is different from the asynchronous approach. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you're you're just blocking until your asynchronous request gets handled, sort of. My video code out. I don't know if that's a problem. So, Eva, what advantages are you seeing to uh, mm-hmm. the new reactor implementation? Um, the I think right now still not a lot because we're still in the very early times. So right now, reactors are something for early experimenters and people to explore and figure out how to use and what are the correct patterns and things that we should do and shouldn't do. But I also, I am, I really like reactors because I think they're an interesting extension of how people already did concurrency in Ruby. So it was very common for people that wanted to take advantage of multiple cores on their machine to use several Ruby processes. And these Ruby processes could communicate via a socket or something that gets shared, and they would not be able to directly share memory. So I think the Rector model ends up being, what if we took this model that web servers and other Ruby tools do where there's where they just communicate via across uh, different processes and we put all of them inside the same Ruby inside the same Ruby process and inside that process they can communicate via this Raptor abstraction. Sweet. I love Riverside. I mean there's some definitely good parts about it but so now that we've talked a little bit about Raptors. So let's talk about some of the unsafe concurrent Ruby patterns that you ran into. I'm like super interested in this. Uh, I haven't had a lot of application myself to do a lot of concurrency, right? Like for the most part, like I write web maps and web maps right now, you don't need concurrency. So in certain use cases, maybe you would need it. But as a, I feel like I'm in the in the place of a lot of Ruby users where it's like, oh, this is really cool and I would like to use it someday, but I literally haven't had a, a meeting that I've come out of with a requirement that I was like, this justifies concurrency. So I'm not there yet. What am I going to run into when I start doing it? Yeah, so definitely the interesting challenge about Ruby is that in some ways, and here's where my uh, Java background kicks in, is that in some ways, even though in Ruby you cannot have multiple 
threads uh, running in parallel. So you cannot have multiple threads that are working on the same at the same time work on Ruby code. You have concurrency, which is like multiple threads are working, but only one of them runs at a time. But even though Ruby has this uh, simplified model, it still ends up having a lot of the same pitfalls that you get when you have parallelism, which is that you don't know when the multiple Ruby threads that you might be executing, you have no control over that. And so that means that if you, if you are trying to share data among multiple threads and you are trying to read something from a thread at the same time as another tries to write, you have basically no, uh, no guarantees that things are going to go how you would expect it to go if you are looking at it as if it was just a single thread. So you need to always be thinking, what happens if between this line and this line, another thread comes in? And, and so the challenge with Ruby, I would say, is that at least in the base language, there's not a lot of classes and like helper tools to help you out and do correct things here. And so over time, a lot of Ruby developers have, have adopted like some strategies, but I, uh, but in my experience sometimes is that some of those strategies might not, not, might not be as correct or foolproof as you would expect by looking at them. And so my experience with this actually started uh, with like the, the second Ruby app I've worked with uh, was a very complex application that uh, coordinated a lot of calls using uh, a lot of phone calls using the Twilio APIs. So if you're not familiar with Twilio, it provides you an API to control and make phone calls and then join callers together and do a lot of interesting things. And so you would have this problem of like in a phone call, there are multiple people and people would come in, they would come out, they would press buttons, they would try to do some things. And so this application had to deal with this kind of concurrency. There were multiple things happening at the same time in a phone call. And so this was my kind of trial by fire, where I had to learn a lot of these things the hard way by either writing them and, and running into issues or debugging them if someone had written them there. So definitely in this presentation I, I made and like the blog post uh, that I made afterwards, I tried to kind of distill some of the interesting things that I found out about things you should and should not do in Ruby and things you should be on the lookout. Whoops, if you do this, it might seem correct, but it's actually not. And you might run into issues when you have concurrency. It's true. So the last time I dealt with concurrency, I don't know if you have any thoughts, Valentino, but the last time I dealt with it was, it wasn't actually even in Ruby. It was, so my first gig was for an auction company and we, we did livestock auctions. And so we would broadcast the video and audio real time. And that was actually a flex application. So if you're familiar with action script from back in the day, you know, flash stuff, that's what we used. And there was some amount of concurrency there, though, to be fair, much like Ruby, most of action script is limited to a single thread. So you would have to, but there was some quirkiness to it, just like Ruby, but yeah. That was Java based too, wasn't it? Flex. It could be. So we actually had a Ruby backend or Rails backend. And those those were some of my, or those were literally my first commits on GitHub were to an ape, what do you call it? Like an extension to like the API that we were using or whatever. Yeah, definitely the part of the challenge is that with this kind of concurrency, when you're looking at the concurrency bug, it often is non-deterministic. And so what that means is it might happen, it might not happen, and you never know if it will happen or not. And they usually happen when the application is uh, busier, more loaded, has more events, slower, etc. And so it's one of those things where you write the code, 
you test it on staging, it looks fine. You test it on your other environments, pre-prod, etc. It's fine. And then you throw it in production. And then like once in a while, maybe every one minute, maybe every five minutes, maybe every day, maybe every week, something really weird and something really broken happens that can even take your application down and you are completely baffled because you cannot at all see it happen like on your machine, on any other, other testing environments because they don't have enough traffic coming in and out and enough things happening at the same time to be able to actually trigger the issue. And this is why these issues are both interesting as well as really hard to debug and to catch. Yeah, my right. my concern concurrency experience is mostly Kafka related or message queue bound, right? Where you there's a separate system that you're offloading that concurrency to. The Ruby stuff is really interesting. I have a I have a lot of problems with it. <laughs> it in the it, you know it's like you said it's still immature, but also like because of that it's hard to get started with. So I, my experience is very <laughs> is I'm not very much in that concurrency realm yet. And a lot of my hesitation is because Ruby is immature to to dive into it with Ruby, right? And I imagine that's the same case with a lot of people where a lot of this stuff is new and not really ironed out yet. But my, my one experience was with hardware where I had a Raspberry Pi hooked up to a bunch of GPIOs that I wanted to be concurrent and have a block of Ruby execute for each GPIO. And ran into a ton of issues joining the threads for that. Definitely, like usually the well, the safest thing in Ruby is to try to avoid concurrency if you can, and that has kind of been the thing so far. And the interesting thing about Raptors bringing this a bit full circle is that if Raptors kind of pan out and uh, more libraries and tools in the Ruby community uh, build on top of it, it I hope that it's going to be the thing that dismystifies and makes the concurrency uh, both easy as well as safe in Ruby because right now you can definitely do it, but it's challenging and you need to be rather careful with what you're doing and what you're and how you're using it. And the promise of Raptors is, okay, you will have multiple Raptors and as long as you follow these very simple rules, you communicate via sending messages and a few other things, then hopefully this will be fine and you will like uh, it will be easy to debug your application and you will not have like mysterious failures so this is what i'm really hoping that the rectors bring into the ruby community although they aren't there right now and that's kind of while i was exploring rectors it's what led me to write my blog post where i ran into this issue where well, if a Raptor runs too slow, then the whole Ruby app can crash because it's, there's no way for another Raptor to, uh, there's no built-in way for another Raptor to say, hold up, hold up, what? too much, too much work. And so work can just pile up if a Raptor is not actively looking at its input message queue. There's some really good points here, right? So Valentino, I think you, you made a good point. Uh, I'm just kind of tying these together. You brought a good really point up. We're already using, I keep forgetting that, yeah, using Sidekick, using Kafka, all of those things, those are concurrency, right? Not of the same type, but they are. You have some of those problems. And even you have to deal with them. And even like on modern Rails apps, I believe right now the default web server uh, when you create the Rails app is Puma. And Puma actually has multiple 
configurations. And I'm not sure what the defaults are, actually. I haven't checked in a while, but one of the configurations that Puma allows you is to have multiple threads. So even, even though uh, your code might not explicitly create multiple threads and do things, well, maybe your web server has created them for you and is using them. So that's one of the things where it's rather important to, to be aware of the uh, Puma configuration and how it's, it's set up because it can be using multiple processes that are separated or it can use threads or it can be use a mix of both. And if you are using threads, then it's possible to run into some of the issues uh, with concurrency. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is okay, so getting to a specific thread problem, right? This is the reason why we say, you know, be careful when you're using global variables. Or, and you'll often hear people say, never use global variables. But what they really mean is, like, use them sparingly, know what you're doing. That's, that's like, global variables are a great way for thread problems to be introduced, right? Like, if you, it's, it's one thing to put it in an initializer, right? So the probably the most common use of global variables I can think of off the top of my head is, in your sidekick initializer, your Redis initializer or something, right? You probably have a global variable for Redis. Like that's a really common pattern that I see all over the place. When you run it in your initializers, it gets, it, that gets set up before like threads get made. So all of your threads all have that global variable set on them. But if you set a global variable later on during your app life, that's not guaranteed to be on every single thread. So you can run into issues there. It's not actually like it, if you set something after creating threads, it will be visible by the multiple threads. The problem is they might not see it at the same time. So especially if you have multiple threads at the same time, when you write something that is lazy, for instance, where you check, oh, is, does this exist? If not, create a Redis configuration. That's when it's really problematic because Otherwise, you can you can still create and you can still create like global variables and that, uh, write to them even after creating threads. The problem becomes when you have multiple threads trying to read or write that thing at the same time. It's when it becomes harder to predict what's going to happen, and then you need to reach out for some of some concurrency tools such uh, such as monitors and, and such helper classes so that you can kind of control what's up and avoid any issues. Okay, so I might have gotten something slightly wrong there. So to clarify then, so the issue, my understanding was that if I, if I have two threads, for example, right? So thread one and two, and I assign global variable A on thread one, thread two does not have that value in that variable. Uh, thread two will be able to see that value. Okay, so the issue is only when I'm writing. Okay then, all right. The problem becomes like, when does it see it? So for instance, if you start two threads at the same time and the first, uh, the first thread you, you start, the, the first thing it does is write to this global variable. And then you, the second thread you, you start, the first thing it does is read from this global variable. It's possible that because threads execute concurrently, you actually, in your code, you, you created like thread number one and thread number one assigned to this global variable and then thread number two read from this global variable. But there's no guarantee in Ruby that Ruby will actually follow this order. And so it's possible that Ruby actually will start the second thread first and then try to read from the global variable without the first thread actually having gotten the opportunity to write to it. So this is kind of the issue is that yep. If you coordinate between threads, and there are some ways to coordinate between threads, you can be assured that everyone will kind of see each other. But if you have no way of coordinating, then you never know who's ahead of uh, uh, and who's falling behind and who has written what effectively. So, and and this actually is a 
unintentional example of what I was actually trying to get to earlier, which is like, and that you kind of brought up, which is like the tooling, I'm sorry, there's a lot of stuff to think about when you're thinking about threads. And if you don't deal with threads for like many years, then you like get back into it and you have to kind of relearn every time because there's like legit a lot of stuff to think about. I don't remember all the lock types, for example, you know, things like that. I don't remember the use cases of which kind I want to use where. But like the thing about threading today is that there's a lot of context that you have to hold in your head that isn't your code. It's just how do I thread when you're doing threading coding and yeah, I think I think my hope for actors is that that gets better. Yeah, I think that's why they were they were added. Like it's the Matt has, has talked about in a bunch of his uh, presentations about uh, how he was never quite happy with what we got out of Ruby threads and that they, well, they don't they are not like programmer happiness, uh, uh, like developer happiness as a lot of other Ruby things uh, aim to be. And definitely, it's hard. It's hard to like remember all of these special cases, and to get them right. And the problem is that sometimes you get them almost right, and things almost work, and then they break sometime later, which is the really annoying part. Is the almost. It's much better if things fail immediately because you know, oh, I got it wrong. But when they fail sometime, maybe, maybe in the customers, uh, in like when a customer is doing something, not when you're doing something, that's when it becomes really hard. Race conditions. Yes, so. <laughs> exactly. All right. So, all right. Now that I brought that one up, any other like particular like any other like hangups with threads that you like maybe want to highlight that are like either like easy to fall into, hard to see, or anything like that? Yeah, actually, the the thing uh, I I was using as an example earlier is a thing that has been, has tripped me and I've seen, I've tripped over on it is like in Ruby, it's really common to use the, the, the pattern of creating things lazily, where you would usually go Something pipe pipe equals some some initialization value and and we it's like you see that this pattern all the time in Ruby code, which is like okay we may not we may not want to compute something eagerly but the first time something is is accessed you want it to be created and then stored and from them on reused so this is a really common pattern in Ruby at least in my experience and it's a really and this is one of those patterns that is completely completely uh, trips you under several threads because what can happen is that if uh, you have multiple threads that are that are at the same time trying to get this this value and they they all will all at the same time run into the same initializations so you can have like two threads they both go into a method they try to read read some value they find that the value is nil and then they both at the same time both decide let's initialize uh, this new value and then they do the initialization and then they assign to the value and then they go out and this is a race condition and so one of them will win and the other will lose but the problem is well if you're just initializing some hash some string some something that it's it's uh, harmless then no, there's no problem. You did some a bit of extra work, but this has no uh, no big impact. But for instance, I've had issues in production where a database driver was or a, a database driver was being initialized like this, and so actually multiple threads would cause multiple database drivers to be created, 
And the problem was that actually the database driver used its own background threads. So actually at some point in that application, we would run out of threads because we had so many, so many leftover database driver connections that had been created accidentally by the application. And like this pattern of uh, or equals in Ruby is like really nice and I, I use it every time I can. But I, every time I'm about to use it, I pause and think, will this, like, do I expect to, this to be used across multiple threads? And no, fine. Yes, then I, okay, let's do something else because otherwise I'm just introducing a new bug here. I find that super interesting. I mean, I, uh, I remember I've had to do mutex locking on a, around some database calls before, but uh, yeah, the lazy loading thing, I literally use it everywhere. I will say I, I definitely use it for like, how should I put this? So, so I'm pretty big into like using OOP for like modeling, right? And using functional style for like processing, right? So, and when you're modeling, your lazy loads are really just more like virtual attributes than anything. So I always feel pretty safe about that kind of stuff. Like the worst thing that typically would happen is maybe you might recalculate something that you calculated before, right? But yeah, I think I get uncomfortable with lazy loading in in something that I consider to be functional, like in a processor of some kind, right? So maybe maybe I, I mean we don't I don't really intentionally do concurrency anyway, so I'm probably not going to run into this issue as it is. But it, it may just be like a maybe you yeah, you have one of these in in your application just writing to Spring. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> uh, very possible, actually. <laughs> But yeah, like uh, the thing is, it's for most applications you always have bugs, so it's yep. it's annoying to have these. Uh, these are the worst kind of bugs, but they're they're bugs on top of other bugs that you might have. So they are, yeah, <laughs> you always have bugs and you always try to fix them. It's it's not different from that point of view. Like no application is perfect uh, except maybe the empty one. In, in, your, in your article, article you, you offered Mutexas, Mutexas as a reasonable solution mm -hmm. for this. That, that worked pretty good, good in, your in your experience then? then? Yes. Uh, Mutexes uh, were built to basically provide coordination between threads so that if multiple threads are trying to do something at, at the same time, you get what, uh, what it's usually called mutual exclusion. So it just means they go in one at a time, they do what they need to do, and then the next one can come in. And, and so mutexes create this point where basically they eliminate concurrency for some block of, uh, of code that you pass in when you, uh, when you are using the mutex. So you basically say, execute this block of code, and this block of code can only be executed by one thread at a time. If there are multiple, then the others just wait until it's their turn. And by by introducing this concept of like everyone goes their own turn, then you eliminate concurrency. And by eliminating concurrency, well, you don't have problems anymore. So a mutex is a tool to eliminate concurrency strategically in parts where you know, well, if there's concurrency here, you, there's going to be problems. Got it. But that also then you have to think about, okay, I'm creating a line right here. Uh, it can be a performance bottleneck or whatever. So you don't want, obviously this is coming from somebody who learned about mutexes in school and hasn't used them professionally outside of a few special cases, but you don't want to have like a very long, large method that's calculating a bunch of stuff you wrapped in a mutex. You want small pieces of it to be locked in because otherwise you're literally putting everyone in behind a line. Exactly. Um, so you need to be you need to be careful because uh, like if you 
if you don't, then you can effectively do... Well, you can effectively do what Ruby do, does itself because that's what Ruby does internally. So internally, Ruby has its own mutex and only one Ruby thread can be running at the time. And like, if you are not careful and you put like a mutex around like a too big block or a too uh, big slice of your application, then, then you get effectively this. Only one will go in at the time and be able to do anything. Awesome. So Eva, we've we've talked a lot about kind of some drawbacks of currency and and kind of what's a, some pitfalls you've outlined that are pretty great. What pieces of Raptor have you seen that you really like and are kind of excited about to expand on? I definitely I one of the the pieces I like the most, which is maybe not the more obvious one, is how. To Rector, uh, for Rectors to work, you actually need to, they can only send immutable things between them. So things that cannot be changed. And so like things that cannot be changed is a concept that exists in Ruby, but it's quite common for you to change stuff all the time in Ruby and in object-oriented programming in general. That's quite common. And so by, because if you, you can only use Raptors if you start creating these kinds of immutable objects, objects that you create and then you don't change anymore, which I think that that will be, bring a very positive approach in the, to the ecosystem because more people will start to uh, use immutable objects and go a bit closer to functional programming using objects than using like a lot of mutable stuff and writing and uh, changing objects all the time. And so the part uh, of Raptors that really excites me is that uh, for them to really work and be successful, then we need to have more tools and more easier ways to have immutable stuff in Ruby and pass immutable stuff around. And and I, I think we're, I kind of try to follow the Ruby core mailing list and we seem to be, uh, there seem to be that, to, that there are ongoing conversations around adding more tools and easier ways of creating different kinds of Ruby objects that are immutable. And so I think this, even if people end up not using Raptors and they use regular threads, or even if they don't uh, use any of that and they continue using their own code, I think by uh, making it easier to create things that are immutable and by kind of forcing libraries to use more and more of these things, there will be a lot of uh, gain to the Ruby ecosystem, even if you never end up using Raptors directly. Yeah, I, I like that a lot too. I, I think Samuel Williams is working on that immutable module to get in, integrated into Ru the Ruby ecosystem. I definitely like that. It's it's kind of nice if you work with Sidekick or, or any of these workers, right, where they need to be immutable, otherwise <laughs> you, they could get run again, right? Because it just pulls off the queue and works on it. So I think I think we're already getting there as Rubyists, right? to keep in mind of, okay, you want to do this task, make sure it's immutable and wrapped in its own ecosystem. And I think that's a good place to kind of drive toward that concurrency models. Completely. If you, if, if you have multiple threads, but you are only sharing immutable things and you are not like reading from one thread and writing from another, then that simplifies things a lot as well. So uh, the, the issue is always when there are multiple threads changing things at the same time. If if not, if not, that doesn't happen, then like everything else becomes a lot more simpler, which is kind of the selling point for a lot of, uh, a lot of other languages that go further than Ruby and they just say, oh, you cannot mutate stuff at all. Done. <laughs> it's nice to be able to have your cake and eat it too. Mm. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, and I, I think like Ruby's approach of 
letting you pick and choose. Like in this case, like it's it's okay. I'm I can use this uh, immutable approach. In the other in the other uh, in other case, I prefer using another different style of expressing my code. I think that's really where Ruby's power come in of making it easier to use several styles as needed to solve like different problems. And I think Ruby is really adaptable because of that property as well. Yep. I'm a huge fan of that. So we're all very excited for uh, the new Rector-based uh, server then, which I can't remember off the top of my head. Falcon, that's what it was. Yeah, I think Falcon right now, is it? I'm not sure if it's using Rectors yet, but I think at some point it there, it makes sense for it to do that. Yeah, hang on. All right, now I gotta, I gotta look this up. I thought it was still in that async ecosystem. And that whole, uh, that whole ecosystem, I think, will also benefit from all of this work because... Oh, you're right. I thought that we were... Okay, that's fair. I could have sworn I, I had Rectors in my head when, we were t when I was thinking about Falcon, but you're correct. It's using ASIC. I, I think the confusion might have come from because Samuel Williams has been doing a lot of contributions to Ruby. And in Ruby 3, there, were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of work around the async work and scheduler, uh, IO schedulers and whatnot at the same time as Rectors made it in. So it might have seen that the two things were the same, but it actually, they're actually like related concepts and like different people working on having different concurrency uh, things on the JVM. Um, sorry, on Ruby. <laughs> that, that was a follow-up topic I'd like to explore, if you're willing, Evo. Because you have a lot of JRuby or Java. Do you have JRuby background or is it just uh, Both. Java? <laughs> I've used oh. JRuby and I've used like regular Java, boring <laughs> Java. So I guess where are some parallels that you see Ractors in, in real relationship to the JRuby ecosystem as far as like what what advantages do you see Ractors taking uh, over the JRuby ecosystem or vice versa so JRuby JRuby is really interesting because it has an, a lot of uh, nice properties that it's uh, it if uh, if well tuned it's definitely faster than regular ruby and uh, you can you can get like multiple threads really running at the same time, so you get like, real parallelism. But it also means that if something if there is a concurrency issue in your code, maybe it most of the time works in uh, regular Ruby. But once you go to JRuby, then like JRuby will a lot more often trigger the issue because. Well, JRuby has that many more opportunities for things to go wrong because threads are working and running Ruby code at the same time. So I do think that Rectors also make sense to apply to JRuby as well, although you get less of a gain uh, on JRuby. So part of the selling point of Rectors is that they they break one of the most fundamental fun, one of the most fundamental assumptions in the Ruby uh, virtual machine, which is that only uh, one thread can be running Ruby code at a time. This happens because Ruby or the C Ruby implementation has something that they call the global VM lock. And so threads uh, take and release this global VM lock before they are able to run Ruby code. And uh, Rectors, one of the big selling points is that instead of being uh, in Ruby 3, instead of being one global VM lock, uh, the, there's no longer a global VM lock, there's actually a VM lock per Rector. So if you have three Rectors, or let's say four uh, to have a, a nicer number, if you have four Rectors and you have a four core computer, like you can have 
four actors at the same time uh, crunching through Ruby code and they will be executing and they will be using all of your four or eight or 16 if you increase the number of actor, uh, cores on your machine. So that's like a, that has been a, a big selling point for other languages and Ruby uh, can get there now using Rectors. And in JRuby, you actually don't need to use Rectors to, to get this property of I get more threads and all of them are running at the same time. So Rectors for JRuby, they bring more the safety and easy to program aspect of concurrency and less the performance potential. So I don't think you will get more in terms of performance out of JRuby uh, once it has Rectors. You will, but it will be safer uh, if you rewrite your code using Rectors and JRuby provides Rectors. So I think that's how I would put the, the comparison between both of them. That's really interesting. I didn't know that the Rector implementation was wrapped around GVL like that. Is it GVL? GVI, yes. I, I always forget. I, well, they, uh, usually people <laughs> say JVL. JVL. It's the global <laughs> VM lock. Yeah. Oh, I thought we always called it the gill, but okay. Actually, that the it's one of those things that the gill is what Python what people call their JVL, and so that name has kind of stuck. But I believe like all of the Ruby core developers, every time they're talking about it, they call it the JVL. But okay. usually, when myself, I, a lot of the time when I'm talking to other developers and like about like VM stuff, usually I just say the gill because if someone is not from the Ruby ecosystem and has not looked at some of the talks from Matt and the other Ruby developers, it's much more common that they know exactly what you mean when you say Ruby has a gill versus Ruby has the JVL. That makes sense. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, those I certainly didn't want to be pedantic there. I was just definitely curious. No, no, it's like, I, I think it's a, a very common, like, it's a very common thing. So I use them interchangeably and I don't think it makes a big difference. Yeah, sweet. Time is of the essence when identifying and resolving issues in your software. And our friends at Raygun are here to help. Their brand new alerting feature is now available for crash reporting and real user monitoring to make sure you're quickly notified of the errors, crashes, and front-end performance issues that matter most to you and your business. Set thresholds for your alert based on an increase in error count, a spike in load time, or new issues introduced in the latest deployment, along with custom filters that give you even greater control. Assign multiple users to ensure the right team members are notified with alerts linked directly to the issue in Raygun, taking you to the root cause faster. Never miss another mission-critical issue in your software again. Try Raygun alerting today and create a world-class issue resolution workflow that gives you and your customer peace of mind. Visit raygun.com to learn more. Their simple usage plans start from as little as $4 per month, with unlimited apps and users. That's raygun.com to start your free 14-day trial. Yeah, I think uh, for me, the most exciting part about Raktor is I'm not, like, I feel like no one's promising this, but like, for me, I'm I'm looking at it like I have I have a gill for each Raktor, right? Which means that I can feel, I can, I can feel like my code is not going to be running concurrently with anything. <sighs> it's not, because all the Raktors are running next to each other, so they're, never mind. There's no safety guaranteed by that at all. There is some, because Rectors cannot directly interfere with each other. So that, that's the big advantage is that Rectors restrict what you can do. Thing. And so by restricting what you can do, they kind of help you not do the wrong thing because it's almost, it's not impossible, but it's really, really, really hard to do the, right, uh, the wrong thing using Rectors and uh, to shoot yourself in the foot, for instance, in the ways I was describing on my unsafe concurrent uh, Ruby Patterns blog post, because a bunch of the things I was showing there, you effectively cannot do when you have Rectors. And so by, by 
preventing you from doing those things, it takes away like a big uh, foot gun that you would accidentally shoot your foot off with. Oh, so let's talk about that real quick. Are they, are, aren't they, aren't Raptors sharing memory space? Yes and no. So Raptors, they are all inside the same Ruby process and the same Ruby VM. They share the same classes, the same modules, etc. And but they cannot they cannot share instances of objects like you cannot share objects between them unless the objects are uh, immutable and it, so if they are immutable, it's okay to share these objects or even to copy them because well there's no there you cannot run into issues uh, with immutable objects because they cannot change and so the fact that they all run inside the same address space is really not. It's more of an implementation detail. So if you look at like how Ruby runs under the hood, that's how it does it. But if you could implement Raptors by, for instance, creating multiple Ruby processes and just having them exchange messages. And so you could even uh, use this strategy to bring like the Raptor implementation to earlier versions of Ruby if you were really bored like one, uh, one weekend. And because the way that Raptors work, like, you would get the same, uh, almost the same kind of properties between them. So that's, you end up having this uh, nice property of you all run in the same uh, process. So you don't have multiple copies of classes. You don't have multiple copies of your code. You, you can kind of share the garbage collector and all of those things, but you get a lot of isolation that Ruby enforces. And so it helps you not run into issues because of that. Okay, I think I think I got some confusion because uh, we were talking about your blog post, which is talking about general concurrency, and I was thinking that was applying to Raptors. Okay, so so then if I if I'm just sharing like okay yeah 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 so if I'm just sharing only immutable objects and for example all my local variables and other things that are well I mean there's a lot of mutable objects in Ruby, but like all my things that are mutable are more or less duplicates of each other, then I'm getting I'm getting thread safety at the cost of more RAM, basically. Yes. So if you have to create okay. if you have to right. create copies okay. of things, okay uh, then that. then yes, you would uh, you would have more memory usage. But but if you do uh, freeze things and you have like one copy of of things that uh, that is immutable, then you can share uh, share things and you don't have that memory impact. So you basically you, you have both options. You can either copy stuff, and so by copying it to guarantee that there's no conflicts, but you, you pay uh, using more memory, or you can make it immutable, and in that way, you can share it directly, but, well, you cannot mutate, so you will need to change your classes, your, codes, uh, your code, and the, any libraries that you use to be able to take advantage of this pattern. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I use... a. Uh... I use functional style all over the place, not with everything, but with a lot of things. So that makes complete sense um, to have immutable stuff. I don't mark everything as immutable, but I make the assumption, right? So there's obviously some work to do for for people like me who aren't using libraries that force things to be immutable, but it's doable. And and with Ruby being having like first class functional support, that's totally a thing you can do. Okay, awesome. I would totally buy that, even with the memory increase, to be honest, because Memory's not free, but memory's pretty cheap, right? Especially for us Rubyists who have already like gone down the road of being like, oh, just add more RAM to it, it's fine. Yeah, usually memory, you Ruby applications, like you can usually not, like you run into into memory constraints if you are trying to have like multiple like processes or threads like in a Puma web server or something like that. But if you have, if you don't have concurrency, you usually don't run into too many memory issues in Ruby. So yes, usually not a big problem. Awesome. Yep. 
uh, usually happens when you have lots of lots of requests coming in that all want PDFs or something. That's the thing that I that always gets me. That's that's the one that I always think of. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. 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 That is. Jeez. Is this what you were going for, Valentino? Because this is. Uh, I'd forgotten about that part, obviously, and got myself confused. What's that? The whole the fact that rectors are more or less giving you the thread safety, so you don't have to do it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of curious how, because uh, I think the way that the async framework works is they have kind of like a reactor on top, which ultimately reactors within Ruby would act similar ways if they each had their own GVL, right? Where the, it would be almost like a reactor on top of that particular reactor. It's wrapper. somewhat different. So they, they, but they can kind of work together. So... The thing about the, the reactor is that it usually encapsulates a pattern where your code runs for a bit. And then once your code is about to block for some reason, because, well, it's reading from the database, it's calling a different service, it's going to like read a file, anything that would cause your code to block, your code, instead of blocking, it yields to the, to the, uh, to the reactor and says like, okay, like, please put me in the queue and wake me up when there's something for me to do. And so... Async works a bit like uh, works like that. So the, you can have multiple of these of these fibers. It usually uh, it it usually uses fibers. So you you can have multiple things going on. And once they block, they get put on a queue and they get uh, woken up when there's any uh, some something for them to do. It's somewhat different from reactors because reactors inside the reactor you can actually block, and if you block, then the reactor will be will be blocked until there's something for it to do, which is, and the same reactor will not then stop doing the, what it was doing and then pick up some other bit of work, which is what you get from a reactor. But if you start using both of them together, it means that you can have like a reactor per reactor or something, some combination like this, where you can have the multiple, like you can have the property of having uh, multiple reactors working in different cores on your server, and they will all be working at the same time. And all of them have a reactor. And all of them apply this pattern of they do some work. And when they are about to block, they uh, they just park that work and go do something else. And so this would probably uh, be one of the configurations that allows you to have like the most performance out of your server using Ruby in the future. I see. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> so how does the new... I, I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but how does the new uh, fiber scheduler work with Reactor? Are they se completely separate things, or do they? Is it integrated? Well, as far as I know, they are completely separate. And okay. the the trick about the fiber scheduler is that well, I know a bit about it. So uh, please take what I'm saying with a medium-sized grain of salt because I might be wrong. So sorry, Samuel Williams, if I got this wrong. But my understanding is that there have been other attempts of doing uh, something like the async ecosystem as uh, is doing for Ruby. Like in the past, there was the very well-known event machine, and there have been other gems that have tried to do to do this. Usually, the problem they run into is that a lot of the well HTTP clients, database drivers, etc., that people uh, tend to use with Ruby, they are not ready to use. Uh, a reactor. They are not like reactor friendly. And so you always have this problem of you would need like reactor ready like or, or event machine ready uh, libraries that would uh, do the right thing when you are about to block. And that is really annoying because it's 
like a very like it's kind of an appeal battle because you need to modify everything that your application does and what if one of the libraries you're using or you wanted to use doesn't doesn't do that like it's it kind of leaves you stuck you either have to do a lot of work to maybe like if it's an open source library you fork it etc so but you don't want to do that and the, the key thing about the, the the scheduler that was added on uh, recently to Ruby is to have this property of automatically allowing existing code to be reactor friendly so what if you could take your HTTP client gem that has been working fine for a long time, and when it is about to block, then it automatically makes use of the scheduler. And this is what Ruby added recently. And so it means that it kind of removes this big blocker of you needing uh, needing to think: um, Are all of my libraries uh, like uh, friendly to using reactors, or do I need to like? change and or modify them and instead you can just say okay they should be fine of course there's like a few i think there's a few things to 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 know about it but i believe that the intent is that in general things will just work and so you no longer need to change your dependencies or like to go around patching stuff in the ecosystem so that's pretty powerful and Again, like going back to a bit the Java reference, Java is actually trying to do the same thing right now. And so it's kind of interesting to see that Ruby got there first and people uh, are actually looking to add the same thing to Java that has exactly the same problem, which is when you want to use this pattern of reactor-like pattern, then you also don't want to change all of your libraries in the Java ecosystem either. So it's much nicer if you have something that does it for you automatically. Yeah, I know for me personally, the the reactor pattern is makes a lot more sense. <laughs> but I, I don't work in con- concurrency all the time, so... <laughs> and and it has been proven very successful with Node, right? Like, people... Uh, Node really was the big thing, the big tool that brought this kind of programming to the masses, at least that I know of. And it really... I think it has more than, than proof that this model can work quite nicely and you can do quite nice things with it, yeah. I mean, we did have it for sure well before that, but I think that you're right that Node kind of yeah, definitely Node was not the first, but I, I think like tooling. was the first that really like was really really widely used. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I I don't know. I guess this conversation has been interesting because because uh, you brought that question of Valentino, and I was like, well, I I've always separated asynchronous, you know, work from from being threading but i guess you know like it, it is technically like a paralleling technique so yeah i mean i definitely had i was i was thinking about i i was like sitting here like okay what, what do i think about this because that's a good point and like now i'm like trying to fudge it all together right because i always looked at it as like asynchronous is what i do when i don't when i need when i need to run things asynchronously right like and not synchronously and i need more than one worker or something but I don't want threading, but yeah, it is solving the same problem. So, okay. This has been a very interesting conversation for me. I think, so while we've been talking, not only have I been, did I have to replace like a couple assumptions that I walked into this conversation with that were wrong, but I also was like, well, crap. And, and I've been like sitting here, like doing some reading too, to try and like refresh. Cause we haven't talked about 
uh, Raptors and Fibers in well over six months, and I haven't used them. And so the, go ahead. Let, let's ask Evo here. Yeah, Evo, what what are you using them for? Well, in the past, I've used I've used a lot of well in this the, that for that like that Ruby app where I worked that had a lot of concurrency. I had we had a lot of these things, uh, not Raptors at the time. There weren't any Raptors, and then I also worked on like a. A JRuby application that was really focused on like the performance of what it was doing and used a lot of threads. And so I'm kind of uh, not using Raptors yet because I believe that it's very, very early to use Raptors in uh, Ruby 3.0. So I think right now uh, Raptors in Ruby 3.0 is more uh, about exploring and learning and kind of feeding that information to the Ruby ecosystem and to the Ruby core developers and something that is really hardcore ready for production. But I do think that, and the conversation started around, around this uh, was because actually um, of my employer. So I currently uh, work for Datadog and uh, we have uh, a library that is used for profiling uh, applications, taking uh, distributed traces, and doing a lot more nice things. And a concern we always have is that we cannot impact the user application and we don't want to have a performance impact on the user application. And so actually that blog post was a result of me discussing with my colleagues like around like, should we start using Raptors? How can we use Raptors to make like our code more performant and get more out of the way of the user's code. And that's kind of how I came uh, into doing that blog post about Raptors. Okay. I kind of, so thanks Valentino for asking that much more eloquently. I wanted to kind of like get into that as well as like, okay, so there's been a narrative about Ruby being slow for a long time. And I think those of us that have continued to use Ruby are either in one of, in my experience, one of two camps. One is like, you just accept it and you still use it because you're like, well, Ruby might be slow, but my development time is faster, right? Or I think there's also like, I think there's plenty of people, um, me included, right, who are like, well, typically the reason why you're quote unquote blaming Ruby for being slow is because you have some unoptimized portions of your code that you either haven't taken the time to fix or don't have the knowledge to fix, right? Or don't have a strategy for or something like that. And there's there's a lot of motivation in Ruby to just move forward with features and and not go back and optimize. And so we end up with the in these cases. Do you feel like do you feel like these new things, fibers, reactors, whatever, maybe something that we haven't been talking about, do you feel like these things are going to help push us forward in that direction, uh, performance wise? Is that going to and maybe even change the narrative? Um, that's a, an excellent question. So not quite. I actually don't think that reactors will, well, they will change the conversation around that people say well, Ruby is slow because it cannot lose, use all of the cores on your like really fancy server or, or laptop. And so definitely like Ruby will be able to make inroads on that. But uh, because most people write, when they write Ruby code, they are thinking like in a sequential way, their Ruby code will actually not get a lot faster by using Raptors. Like, Raptors allow you to do more things at once, but the more things you are doing at once aren't particularly faster. So if you think of the kind of mythical man month, Raptors are, are about like, you can get, you can, or even like having a child, you can have more... <laughs> You can have more couples having children at the same time, but they will still take nine months to get there. 
So that's kind of the the uh, the metaphor to go to go from here, like from one couple to multiple analogy. couples. <laughs> that's a great analogy. <laughs> so, but they won't like the individual couples will not get there any faster, and and so I I think to to actually the the get there faster portion is uh, is more on the work that has been that has been doing uh, that has been happening around. Having having either a JIT compiler in Ruby, such as MJIT that is already in Ruby, or YJIT that was recently added to Ruby and will be featured on the next Ruby release, 3.1, or even like the other Ruby implementations such as JRuby or even Truffle Ruby, which is uh, showing really really promising results. So you really uh, be able to go faster. In like a, a straight line, Ruby really needs a, a just-in-time compiler or something that optimizes code rather than just Raptors. Okay. Anything that you feel like maybe we haven't addressed about this topic that you you want to hit up? Yeah, actually, the about the Ruby performance. Like another thing, uh, going back to the the whole discussion of like Ruby is slow. I think part of the problem sometimes is that you might not even realize that there is something that can be optimized. So you look at your code and the code seems straightforward. And so if the codes, you look at your code and the code seems straightforward and it is still slow, you think maybe it's just Ruby being slow, like my code seems straightforward. But I find that like Ruby is really like is really powerful and really nice in terms of allowing you to with very little code, do very powerful things and express what you're doing in a really easy way. But actually, what what is happening under the hood is actually something quite complex. So, for instance, there's um, a common Ruby problem, uh, a common uh, performance problem.